Matthew chapter 5, as we continue our walk through the Sermon on the Mount. What are, the, are some of the things in your life that you could not wait to see? I think back to my younger days, there was a few things that I longed to see and, and was excited as I looked forward to it. I remember the first time I looked over the rim of the Grand Canyon and the awe-inspiring view that was. I remember when I looked through the crown, yes, the crown of the Statue of Liberty. This was pre-9-11, and you could walk all the way up, spiral staircase up to the very top of the Statue of Liberty, and I was able to look out through the crown, and it was an amazing sight to see. I remember the day that I stood at the altar, waiting eagerly for my bride to come around the corner in all her glory. I remember the day of my first child, and uh, that it was a tough thing. It's a tough thing for a man, for childbearing. And uh, I remember the, my firstborn child that I worked through that day, and, and uh, it was an amazing and awe-inspiring sight. But nothing will compare to the day we get to see the Lord. Now, it may be true, and I, it is, surely is, that this is the ultimate goal of religions all around the world, but the sad fact of the matter is that the methods mankind comes up with to see God are faulty. The emphasis of all religions in the world are on the outward actions and behavior for salvation. But Jesus makes it clear that outward goodness without inward goodness is no goodness at all. God is concerned about what's going on in our heart. We're all familiar with the verse in 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, but the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance nor the height of his stature. Amen to that. Huh? People, Anthony up, prancing up here all tall and stuff to pray a few minutes ago. Look not on the height of his stature. Because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as the man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh upon the heart. With that in mind, let's read our text. Matthew chapter 5, and we're at verse number 8. The Bible says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Father, we ask you today to use this text. I pray you'd help us to hear from you in a special way as we look at different scriptures. Different principles in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This beatitude takes on the issue of hypocrisy. It reveals the importance of inward purity. Blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus says that the pure in heart will see God. Now, in every church, there are three types of believers. There are believers, there are unbelievers, and there are make-believers. And that's what I want to focus in just for a few minutes on that last one. Uh, the word hypocrite comes from the English, uh, comes to the English language from the Greek hypocrites, which means an actor or literally a stage player. Back in those days, they would hold a mask in front of themselves to act on stage. And that's what the word hypocrite means. Someone who is not what they represent. Our hypocrisy hurts our relationship with others, but it's devastating to our relationship with God. We're going to look at this topic as we introduce verse number 8. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Because hypocrisy is one of the biggest obstacles for us to be pure in heart. Now, I want to look first then at the hindrances from hypocrisy. The Bible gives several principles about this. Uh, obviously, we know that it's an attribute of the Pharisees. Jesus talked several times about that. 
I was reading a, an article on the, I don't, don't ask me how I come across these articles, but I have weird things that fascinate me. And it was about the styles of the uh, 1600s. And in those days, wealthy women tried to look as beautiful as possible, just as they still do today. They wore beautiful, long, flowing dresses. They, around their waist, they had these puffy paneers that, uh, that came with cane frames to make their hips very wide. They wore extravagant, tall wigs with, uh, flowers or feathers inserted into their hair. Most of them carried elegant fans. In fact, if you look at old pictures, uh, well, paintings from that era, mo- most of the women had an elegant fan hanging from her wrist. Now, you would think that might be to keep them cool in the summer. Not necessarily. That wasn't the primary reason. According to the book I was reading, is instead these women would use those fans to cover their rotting teeth and, and be a block on their just nasty breath that came along with that. That's interesting to me. Look it up. It's true. I'm not just making this stuff up, okay? Outwardly, they're very beautiful and elegant, but inwardly, they struggled with rot and odor. What a picture of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. They were outwardly good, but inwardly corrupt. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 25, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but they are full of extortion and excess within. Matthew 23, 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you like under whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but inwardly are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. The Pharisees were all about outward actions, and they uh, were without inward purity. Now, the hypocrite is inconsistent in his outward and his inward behavior. His focus tends to be on the faults of others. A man came home to find that his wife had bought a pet monkey. That's something to come home to, isn't it? You bought a monkey, he said. And uh, he says, what in the wide world were you thinking? He starts to ask questions about this. One of them, where is this thing going to sleep? And she says, oh, dear, it's going to sleep in our bed with us. And he says, well, what about the stench? And she said, well, I got used to you. The monkey will have to get used to you, too. And that's our problem. We're often blind to the stench of our own sin while we're looking around and seeing the sins of others. We should deal with our own faults before we go around dealing with the faults of others. Jesus said in Luke 6, 42, Either thou, how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, while thou, while thou thyself beholdest the beam in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, then shalt thou see clearly to pull the mote out of thy brother's eye. Our affections are to be without hypocrisy. Romans 12, 9, let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. We're not to be two-faced in how we treat people and how we love others. Some people are so two-faced they could open two iPhones simultaneously. And we're not to be like that. Our love is to be without dissimulation. And the word dissimulation comes from a word that means unfeigned, undisguised, sincere. If our love is not sincere, then it is hypocritical. And if it's hypocritical, then it's repulsive. Counterfeit love is a worthless coin among God's people. 
We're not to say I love you to a brother and sister in Christ and then gossip about them behind their back. We're not to say I love you to someone and then use what we know uh, to hurt them. Hypocrisy and love cannot coexist. They are diametrically opposed to one another. Hypocrisy focuses on self. Love focuses outward to other people. Number four, our attitudes and actions are to be without hypocrisy. Philippians 1.10, that ye may approve all things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. I like to look at the background of words sometimes, and the word sincere comes to the English language from two Latin words, sign, which means without, and sera, which means wax. So literally, the word sincere means without wax. Because ancient dealers of porcelain, when they were uh, dealing with a defective uh, piece, would sometimes fill the cracks in with wax uh, to be able to sell it and get full price for it. And so when you are advertising a pure piece, one that is without any problems, without any cracks, without any holes, you would describe it as sincera or without wax. That's the idea of sincere. If the customer doubted the dealer's integrity, he would then hold that up in the bright sunlight to make sure that there was no defect, no cracks filled with wax, uh, so that it was a sincere product. So the word sincere uh, suggests a pure and tested character, genuine without hypocrisy. So we see some of those hindrances. Obviously, uh, hypocrisy will be a hindrance to us having a pure heart. But look at the holiness in the heart. Jesus said happy or blessed. We've already talked uh, ad nauseum about this, that the word blessed means happy. And if we want to be happy, we'll do the things that are listed in these beatitudes here. They do not match the world's recipe for happiness. But the world's recipe is not God's recipe. It never has been. It never will be. So he says happy are the pure in heart. Now, purity of heart is more than just sincerity. You can be sincere and still be completely wrong. The pagan priests on Mount Carmel, do you remember that story in, in uh, the Old Testament where they're up there trying to call fire from heaven from their god Baal? They're sincere. They're cutting themselves. They're begging their false god for fire to fall from heaven. They were sincere in their worship, but they were sincerely wrong. So what does Jesus mean here? Christianity is fundamentally not about reformation. It is about transformation. It is not about you just changing your behavior or even just changing your mind. We've talked about this much too, that uh, sin is not a behavioral issue. Sin is a condition. So it cannot be remedied by a different behavior. And so many times that's what folks look at it as though they uh, say it changed their mind or changed their way of thinking. We can do that for wrong reasons. The religion does that all the time. It's very possible to change your mind and your way of living without ever having a change of heart. When the Bible talks about Christianity, it talks about a new heart. Uh, a new creature, it tells us in the New Testament. In Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, A new heart will I also give to you, and a new spirit will I put within you. Now, unfortunately, in our English language, we kind of uh, get away from old meanings, because when we talk about the heart, like that crazy, crazy bad advice that Hollywood gives you, follow your heart. Don't do that. Don't follow your heart. But when the Bible talk, or when the society today talks about the heart, we're talking about really our emotions. In fact, Webster's Dictionary says that it is the emotional or moral nature as distinguished from the intellectual nature. In other words, the heart, uh, as talking about the heart as opposed to the head. But that's not the way the Bible 
talks about the heart. It takes it a little further than that. The Bible says the heart is the root. It is the thing that everything in our life springs from. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, and murderers, adulteries, and fornications, and thefts, and false witnesses, and blasphemies. It is the source of your thoughts and your feelings and your actions, and your motives, all that comes from the heart. It's the core of who you are. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. It's important. A pure-hearted person seeks not only to have his outward actions correct, but to live a consistent inward godly life. His devotion to the Lord is undivided. He is not double-minded. He lives with a singular focus. He does, he's not distracted by selfish, sinful, or impure motives. James chapter 4, verse 8, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. The struggle with distractions and double-mindedness has plagued God's people since the Garden of Eden. We can only have one master. We cannot serve two masters. We have to choose who we will serve. Matthew 6, 24, No man can serve two masters. Uh, for either he will hate the one and love the other, else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This beatitude reminds us that we must first get the heart right if we expect to get anything else right. A pure heart will ensure a pure life. If you want to be outwardly, uh, genuinely holy, then we must have the inward be holy as well. Good deeds that do not come from a pure heart, they are of no spiritual value. It's good. Good deeds are always good deeds, but they don't hold any spiritual value if it doesn't come from the right place. Listen to this statement by Thomas Watson. Morality can drown a man as fast as vice. A vessel may sink with gold or with dung. Uh, you may be extremely religious. You may be doing many good things in your life, but we cannot please God if our heart is not right with Him. Our works will never overcome our sin by our works alone. So how do we get pure in heart? How do we uh, become so? Let's take a walk through the Scriptures here and see what the Bible says about purity. Uh, there's a perverted view of purity in that men believe that they are adequate. You know the typical person today and I've talked about this before. You don't have John Q. Public out shaking his fist and get God saying he hates God. He just thinks he's adequate. They think they're good enough. It's not that they're uh, outright hostile towards God, but most people think they are good enough to get to heaven. They're good enough to see God. Proverbs 16, 2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes. Isn't that interesting? Well, we struggle with that. But the Lord weigheth the spirits. Proverbs 30, verse 12. There is a generation that is pure in their own eyes, yet is not washed from their filthiness. You say, yeah, preacher, I know that generation is Generation Z. Well, it's Generation Z and the Millennials and Generation X and the everyone before that, too. We all struggle with this. Claiming to be pure does not make it so. Just as claiming the sky is green and the ocean is, uh, or the sky is green and the grass is blue, it doesn't make it so. Uh, the reason for our mistaken diagnosis is that our purity is gauged by the wrong standard when we do it ourselves. We claim our own purity because we hold it up to a faulty standard. I heard about a 
little boy that came into his mother, came running up to his mother one day and said, Mom, guess what? I'm eight foot four inches tall. He was like five. She was uh, interested, so she investigated and found that he was using a six-inch ruler as a foot. And with a six-inch ruler, he was actually just over four feet, but with that little six-inch ruler, he considered himself eight foot tall. And that's what we do. We measure ourselves by others, by one another, which is nothing better than a six-inch ruler. It's going to give you a faulty measurement rather than by the standard of the Word of God. We had better realize that God's going to judge us by His standard, not by our standard. That's why in the book of Judges, when it tells us that every man did that which was right in his own eyes, they thought they were good. They thought they were doing right. But over and over and over, the book of Judges says, and God saw Israel that they were wicked, that they were exceeding wicked. Because He's judging by His standard, they're judging by their standard. We'd better look at our lives judging by His standard. What God calls an abomination, man calls alternative lifestyle. What God calls enmity, man calls error. What God calls lawlessness, man calls liberty. What God calls willfulness, man calls weakness. We'd better be careful that we don't redefine what God has already put down with a big old period on it. Amen? That's what Satan does. God puts a period, he puts a question mark. You have God said, always uh, questioning. So let's be sure... When we look at this idea of purity, we don't have a mistaken view. And the second mistaken view leads us to this point then, that men think purity is based on outward appearance rather than an inward condition. Again, I read you Matthew 23, 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchers, which do indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness." Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. In an effort to make ourselves pure, sometimes we'll work on our habits. We'll change our lifestyle. Ben Franklin did this. He was a great statesman. Uh, he worked on his habits, and but he did it independently from God, and it made him a good man in people's eyes, but it holds no spiritual value if you don't do it with the right heart. We'll quit drinking, we'll quit going to the bar every night, we'll quit watching pornography, and all those are good things to stop, you understand. But without, uh, ch but changing your behavior may help you live a better life, but it will not make you pure, because we cannot purify ourselves. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? Well, it's a rhetorical question. No one can say that. God told Israel concerning their sin, Jeremiah 2.22, For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord. Nitre is sodium carbonate. And soap, we know what soap is. It's what your 11-year-old son thinks will be the death of him. Uh, we're all familiar with soap. But God says, uh, you're still marked. And the word marked there means deeply stained. In other words, you can do whatever you want to wash yourself. You're still stained in my eyes. Even our righteousness are as filthy rags, the Bible says. Then we come to the promise of purity. Our purity comes from the Lord. Jeremiah 33, 8, And I will cleanse them from all iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. We might look at this idea of purity. And, I mean, I do the same thing when it talks about being pure in heart. We think that's impossible. Uh, who really can be completely pure? And we look at it as in 
as if it's perfection. And it's not really what this is talking about. We understand that moral perfection is impossible for all of us. But purity here means something specific. The, the original word means unmixed, singleness opposed to duplicity. In the Old Testament, when it talks about purity of heart, it is almost always attached to idol worship. In, his, uh, in Psalm 24, 3, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, and hath not lifted his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Talking about worshiping idols. Or Ezekiel 36, 25, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Talking about idol worship. The Old Testament says a pure heart is purified from idol worship. The New Testament says a pure heart is one that is clean from a bad conscience or from dead works. Uh, that dead works is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more uh, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, an idol as it talks about in the Old Testament, and we apply it to our life, can be a good thing. But it becomes a bad thing when you put it in the wrong place. An idol can be your mate. An idol can be your child. If your child replaces God's place on his throne in your life, then that is an idol. It can be a good thing, but if it's put in the wrong place, then it becomes a bad thing. Now, if, if it's something that you live for instead of God. See, you only can know real happiness... If you serve God completely, you have to give up control of your life. These idols are ways that you think you can still control your life and still and find meaning that way as a result. Really what it is saying is we're seeking to be our own God when we take God off the throne of our lives. We're seeking to be accepted through our own striving. How many times... I talk to young people, and, and as a youth pastor, I would hear this all the time uh, to, when we enter the idea of holiness or have a discussion about living right. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. And we are. We strive and we strive. And I believe that's one of the things the Bible is referring to as dead works because we can't do it anyway. There's nothing I can do to make myself pure. The Bible says a pure heart is somebody who's recognized their idols and ditched them. A pure heart is someone who knows I can no longer live my own life the way I please. I cannot be my own savior. We all need to have our hearts sprinkled pure from idols and from dead works. And I love the way that God approaches this because this is the heart of the gospel here. Uh, we, with all of our striving, God understands the pressure we're under and the burden that puts us under, always striving. That's why he tells us in Isaiah 1.18, come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You can't do it yourself. I like the fact that very rarely does the Bible encourage us to reason. Because human reasoning often gets us into trouble. But this is one point where God says, hey, 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 stop. Just think about it a second. You can't. I can why not just bring those sins to me and I'll clean you up? He'll make you pure when you can't do it yourself. A pure heart always comes from God. Let's look at some instructions on purity. We're to live pure and depart from sinful living. 2 Timothy 2.22, read this verse in Sunday school. 
Flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, and peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. The principle of replacement is mentioned here. That which is bad ought always be replaced with that which is good. The same principle is seen in 1 Peter 2, verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Live your life in such a way that you are seeking that which will make you pure and putting aside that which will uh, afflict you and make you uh, sinful. We're to live with a pure, pure heart. And then secondly, we're to love others with a pure heart. Well, I mentioned this a little bit, but 1 Timothy 1.5, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Christians should be filled with the love that comes from a pure heart. Love one another with a Christ-like love. Always looking to seek a benefit for the recipient rather than yourself. If you have the right love with a pure heart, you're going to impact others in a great way. James 1.27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless, the widows in their affliction. The word visit has the idea of getting involved with the needs of others. And then number three, we're supposed to have a pure conscience. First Timothy 3.9, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. Uh, Acts 24.16, and herein do I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. There is no pillow as soft as a pure conscience. A pure conscience is a result of having things right with God and having them right with man. Wrongs have been made right. Forgiveness has been offered and sought for offenses. How's your conscience today? Purity is also needed for useful service. We see in 2 Timothy 2.21, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor sanctified and meet for the master's use. read about one fellow who got a tour of a manufacturing plant. And they, it was a, a steel plant, and he was noticing that uh, they were cutting huge slabs of steel with these torches. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this in action, but it's a pretty amazing thing to see. And, and, uh, but sometimes, though, the flame would get caught up, and the cutting would stop, and then they would add a chemical substance uh, to that resistance until the cutting would resume. And the worker explained that the torch was able to cut through eight-inch thick steel. But if there was rust on top of that steel, it would interfere with the cutting. The flame wouldn't penetrate it. And this is an accurate picture of many Christians today. The Holy Spirit is seeking to produce God's perfect design in your life. If our life is right with God, He's free to work. But if we are corrupted with carnality or rusting with rebellion, the Holy Spirit is hindered until our life is cleaned from that, uh, from that impurity. We need to be clean so the Lord can work in us and through us. So let's look at the path of purity. As always, got to bring this home, right? Uh, it must be practical. It's great to talk about the theory, theory of purity, but let's talk about the purity in our own hearts and lives. Cleansing, first we have to realize, comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, purification from sin begins by recognizing our inability to cleanse ourselves. We need the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive and cleanse us, and He is the only one who can. And praise the Lord, He'll do it if we seek it. 
First John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. One time there was a man street preaching the gospel, and a heckler was yelling at him as he was trying to preach, and one of the things he said is, Hey, you're dreaming! And a little boy tugged on his sleeve and said, Sir, that is my daddy, and he used to come home drunk, and he would beat my mom, and he would beat me. We used to go hungry, but now he's met Jesus, and he's different than he was before. And sir, if he's dreaming, please don't wake him up. That's what the gospel will do for us. That's what Jesus Christ does. He will clean us up. It is God who can change us. It is only God that can really, truly purify us. Number two, we get this cleansing by confession. Confessing of our sins to the Lord, this is what cleanses and purifies us. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do not wallow, friend, in the failures of your conduct. Confess it. Get it right. Bring it to the Lord and let Him cleanse you of it. There's a cleansing and it comes from confession and then also compliance to the commands of Scripture. In 1 Peter 1, 22, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. If we're going to be what God wants us to be, we must make the choice in our life to obey Him. Get rid of our sin, yes, but then live doing what's right and obeying His commands in Scripture and the principles in Scripture. In Mexico and in other tropical areas grows what is known as a strangler fig. Uh, the Spanish-speaking people refer to it as the metapolo, the tree killer. The birds will eat the fruit of this fig, and then they will rub their beaks off on the branches of trees, and it's all sticky and hard to get rid of. And this sticky residue that's left on trees will include seeds from that fruit. And then when the rains come, those seeds will germinate in the branch of those trees, and they'll start to grow out of the heart of the wood. And before long, beautiful trees can become entangled with this parasitic vine. The only way to stop it from killing the tree is to cut it away, cut away that vine. And we must take the same actions with sin in our life. They have to be removed, or else they will choke out the desire to live for God and do what He says. Applying God's Word will help clean up our lives. Psalm 119, line, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto unto thy word. Number four, the fear of the heart purifies our heart. A fear of the Lord, I'm sorry, purifies our hearts. Psalm 19, 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. A reverential fear of the Lord will help us to stay right with God and reject what is wrong. We're to call out to God and have a craving for purity. We ought to have a passionate desire uh, that the psalmist said in Psalm 19, 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, and my Redeemer. David, after his sin, cried out to God for purity. In Psalm 51, 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Listen, friend, is your life marred and spotted by sin? Don't be satisfied to dwell in it. Come to Him for cleansing. So we've seen hindrances from hypocrisy, the holiness of the heart. But let's look at the honor of seeing God. Because the Bible says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As Christians, we can see the Lord now. We can see the Lord in the pages of Scripture, an understanding He is there, His love, His compassion, His holiness, His justice, His wisdom. We can also see the Lord 
in, in uh, other areas, in nature, the Bible says uh, that we'll see His glory in creation. Romans 1.20, for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We see the footprints and the hand of God in nature. The atheist doesn't see Him in creation because he's an unbeliever and he's living his life wickedly. But the pure in heart will see God. The pure in heart will see God in providence. We see the Lord in the events of our lives and the triumphs and the tragedies, the trials of our life. Job understood this after his experience. Job 42.5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of my ear. That was before his troubles. And then after his troubles, but now mine eye seeth thee. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The pure in heart will see God in their daily life. Coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. I like that quote. And we often see God even in the coincidences of life. Uh, Christian people, the pure in heart can see God in a sense that no one else can. We can pray and see our prayers answered. What's better than seeing God than that? The Christian also sees God in their own past. Let me ask you this. Can you not look back on your own life and see God at work there? Well, I know I can. Even in things that have went on in this church that were horrible to endure at the time. And now I can look back and see God was working and, and the things that God has brought about because of the things that we went through. You can see that as well. I have a couple of weird little habits and practices. And uh, one of them was during the times of our deepest struggle here at our church. I have to change the batteries to my, this is my computer mouse, and I have to change the batteries out to this mouse about once every six weeks. And uh, I had a little habit during that time. It was about a, a couple of years. We were having some really difficult times in our church, and, and I had a habit that when I changed out the batteries, um, whatever I was really stressing about at that moment, whatever I was worried would be my undoing that day or the next. I wrote it on a little bit of, just a little slip of paper, and I stuck it in with the batteries, and I closed the lid up. I wouldn't look at it again until next time I changed the batteries. And uh, I took that slip of paper out, and I was like, well, that's, that's been resolved. The Lord sure worked that out. But I was really stressing about something going on right now, and I wrote that on a piece of paper, put it in here. After about a year and a half, I had about six slips of paper here. I still have them in my office. I use them as a reminder. And, and each time I could look back and see that God worked that out. And not only did he work it out, but what was such a stress point for me at the time, what was so hurtful at the time, has been used to make something sweet come out of it. And uh, what, a, what, a, what an example. You know what that is? That's seeing God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And you can look back in your life as well, and you can see God working in areas, working in areas to bring good things about in your life. The problem is we get so desensitized by sin. We get very, very desensitized. I want to tell you about the very first movie I ever saw. We were, I was 10 years old, my sister was 8 my brother was five, and we had a couple of little ones, two at home. And it was right after we had left the Amish, and we had a small TV that we weren't allowed to watch ever, except once in a while, Little House on the Prairie, because 
because that's a godly show. It's in the Bible. So uh, we're able to watch that show. But the TV was actually in our closet. That's a great place for a TV, by the way. It was on the top shelf of our closet, and we could only take it out once in a while. And uh, so I, I was babysitting, so I told my brother and sister, we'll get everything done and get the food done, and we'll clear everything up and clean up, and then we're going to get the TV out, and we'll see if there's something on we can watch. We were very, very sensitive to things on television. We had not been desensitized by the explosions, the gunfights of Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner yet. And so we were very, uh, very new to television. But one thing I did know enough was that when, when names are going up and it's introducing, we knew enough to know that that was the beginning of a movie. And so when we turned on the television and we had put the little ones to bed and the three oldest, old and wise, ten, eight, and six-year-olds were still up, and we uh, turned it on and we saw that a movie was just starting. Good. This is before streaming. This is when you had to actually be there at a certain time, right? You couldn't, uh, you, you couldn't just start it when you wanted to. And so we started to watch this movie. And there we sat, unsensitized by any television up to this point. And we watched the entire movie of Rambo First Blood. <laughs> I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it today. We were so terrified, we couldn't even move our muscles to turn the thing off. That's the thing that kids don't do, by the way. Turn it off! No, we didn't even think that far. We sat there and watched the whole thing. We were so scared at the end of that, and by now it's dark, and uh, we put the thing away, trembling up into the closet, and we sat huddled in the living room just holding each other till mom and dad got home and kept the secret till our dying day. The thing was, we were completely, completely sensitive. Today, kids get very desensitized by television and all the things they see. And I'm asking you as a Christian, we need to remain sensitive. We need to have our, 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 our hearts ought to remain pure. We need to keep the sin that depurifies us out of our life. And one reason I believe we don't see God is because we aren't living in purity. And it's not his fault, it's our fault. The Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they, and again, they only or they alone, the original language makes very clear, for they only shall see God. You want to see God? He's there. Are you pure? Are you living a pure life, a pure heart? If you keep your eyes open, you'll see the Lord working in your own life, even in your trials. As Christians, we will see the Lord one day when we get home to glory. What a blessing that'll be. That'll be uh, physical vision. But now we can see Him as well. How? By being pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let me ask you, do you see Him today? Can you look back over the course of your life and see Him working in your life? Do you see Him working in your life today? Are you seeing prayers answered in your life? If not, friend, don't blame God. He's there. Draw nigh to me, and I will draw nigh to you. Focus on our part, being pure in heart. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I want to ask you today, how's your spiritual vision? Do you see God? The Bible promises that there's a way that you can see Him. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I'm not going to waste much time. I'm going to open the altar right now as she begins to play. If you'll stand along with me, heads bowed, eyes closed.